nothing to do. Many of us experience what we Buddhists call an inner tyrant or an inner taskmaster, which is a voice that constantly harangues and narrates our shortcomings, how we're not keeping up, how we're falling behind, how much left there is to be done. And despite how much suffering and stress is associated with this voice that never approves and always tells us we're walking on the wrong path or we're not attaining enough, it's, um, it, it can maintain itself despite all our attempts to ignore it or to push it away. It believes that our happiness in the world is never available to us right here and right now, but is something that we have to accumulate and is waiting for us way down the line in the future. And so the question is, why do we have this, given how it can misdirect us, it can cause a sense of never living up to some kind of imaginary standards, the sense of falling short. So, fortunately, we actually have now um, a very good idea of where the inner tyrant starts. Fascinatingly enough, a, a somewhat now uh, well-known, although he was originally quite obscure, Russian child psychologist named Lev Vygotsky spent years following around two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-olds in a clinical setting with assistance and just observing how children make the transition to developing inner chatter, that inner speech that we hear in our mind. And what they uh, revealed in this study is that children internalize the voices that they hear from their caregivers telling them not to do something. So in other words, we feel our impulses to run in the hallway, to eat the cookies, to run across the street, to jump on the bed. We feel our desires. We know them in the mind without having to put them into language. But a crucial stage of our development occurs when the parent starts connecting and starts interacting with the child largely through words. Don't eat the cookies. Don't run across the street when it's red. Don't jump on the bed. So when Vygotsky followed the kids around and recorded what they were saying when they thought they were alone, he heard the kids simply repeating exactly what their mothers or fathers had told them, the demands not to do this, not to do that. So it creates in the mind a split between the things we want, which are felt, and the social prohibitions, the regulating voice of the caregiver that tells us, no, you can't have that right now. 
children internalize, or the, the word is also known as interject, this voice as a kind of what we could call security blanket or in psychiatric terms transitional object. As the child goes off increasingly alone into the world and explores places without the mother or father behind it, it regulates its impulses by talking to itself in its mind, saying, don't do this, don't do that. Meanwhile, creating this dichotomy between feeling desires, but telling ourselves we can't have what we want. Eventually, we go off to school, and as we adapt to more demanding social environments, the inner voice, becomes filled with more and more directives, now not just from the mother or the father, but from the teachers and the other kids. When a young boy is told by other young boys you can't show emotion, he interjects that as part of the inner voice saying, I can't show my sadness. When girls are told not to behave in certain ways that are inappropriate for gender, according to their peers, they interject that voice. So eventually, the mother's or father's voice in our heads, which started off as simple directives that help us survive, become colluded and clouded with a million different messages that have nothing to do with our survival and simply have to do with how well can I win the approval of the social milieu around me. So we make the transition from I'm no longer simply trying to use this language in my head to keep myself alive and not be run over, to now it's filled with all these different beliefs of I can't do this, I can't show that, I can't act this way, because if I do, I will fall short, I will not be loved, I will be ostracized, rejected, and abandoned. Human beings are social beings. We don't run fast, we don't dig holes well, we don't climb trees in any, with any alacrity to the point that we could survive. But what we do do is we connect with other people, and that's what made us the dominant species. So anything that threatens our connection with other people feels traumatic. So the inner tyrant becomes a nexus of all this language in the mind that tells us what we have to accomplish and do and what we cannot do and what we cannot show to somewhere in the future win some kind of love and secure connection and happiness. Because the inner tyrant is maintained by the narrative mind, it, like all narratives, turns this quest into a story. There's something missing. There's something I have to get. It's not available to me now. The love, the, the sense of the point the security, the ease, the comfort I'm seeking is not available to me here. 
So the Buddha referred to this inner tyrant as what's called a chetasika. And he said uh, these mental formations maintain themselves because they believe that our very survival depends on them. And at first, our survival did depend on this inner voice telling us not to run across the street. But we never delineate between those very important simple messages of um, I shouldn't run across the street or I shouldn't play with this strange dog until I know it's safe from the completely arbitrary socially uh, constructs messages based on don't show your feelings, don't show your sadness, try to accomplish as much as you can, you're falling short, other people are getting ahead of you in life, you're not writing the great American novel, you're not painting the great painting, you're not living up to it. And meanwhile, the skillful chetasikas, based on you know, compassion, wisdom, kindness, generosity, they get increasingly pushed under. As the inner tyrant or taskmaster believes it is solely responsible for our survival and that every directive, no matter how arbitrary, it believes is essential for us to survive. It can be very easily confused with awareness itself. We can identify with that inner taskmaster, that inner tyrant, and believe that is me. That is who I am. Interestingly, though, the Abhidhamma said that the Chaitasikas, these mental formations, are not the observer. And it compares awareness itself, that which is aware, to a king sitting on a throne. And surrounding the king are busy merchants running the kingdom. And those are the Chaitasikas. Especially, it says, the loudest Chaitasika is the inner tyrant, the one that commands our ears and tells us we're not living up to... um, what we need to accomplish. And so eventually the king, awareness itself, fades into inactivity and believes it has no power whatsoever. So the first role of meditation and spiritual practice perhaps could be seen as learning how to separate and detach awareness from that inner tyrant, that taskmaster that tells us work hasn't been completed. We have to fix, solve, address, deal, accomplish. That there's always more things that need to be tackled. I like to meditate never in the morning. I meditate at the end of my workday because I find, even as a Buddhist teacher, I'm sure similar to what everybody does, there's a feeling in one's work life that we have to fix or solve or address or in some way be involved in unresolved issues. 
that we cannot let things just abide and just be. We live and we rely on that inner taskmaster and tyrant to keep us to a certain degree pushing through, showing up for life, meeting the busy schedules that we maintain. And so for me, my practice becomes a way to put down that feeling that I need to fix, solve, address, deal with, intervene, that any problems in the world of, or in my life need to be addressed. And the goal is to get to a place where I can just let all the unresolved dramas be. So, for me, that is what I think of uh, nothing to do. I think of that state of mind that counteracts the inner tyrant. The inner tyrant is always telling us there's something to do, something that needs to be achieved, something that we haven't addressed. And so to move into direct connection with a concentration object like the breath is a radical way to disempower that inner tyrant. There's nothing it likes less than us coming to a complete stop and pulling away from the dramas and the world and the accomplishments and the narratives and to simply connect with something that's present. There's nothing more threatening to it. Sometimes to do this, I need to assure the inner tyrant or taskmaster that it will be back and raring to go tomorrow and that I will be more than happy to check in with it and listen to it as it tells me all the things that I'm falling short with in my life. So we have to bargain with it. And I think that's not bad because there's nothing in the mind that's there by mistake. Everything we experience believes it's contributing to our survival. And so to try to push away any predominant or repetitive experience is a waste of time. We have to learn how to meet its needs or to reassure it that we will check in with or understand the message that each element in the mind carries. I also use positive recollections. Sometimes uh, the recollections are called Santinusati, Devanusati, Kaganusati all listed in the Ten Recollections, just reminding myself that even when I don't worry and I don't fill up my life with busyness and I don't try to accomplish anything, I can find love and connection and I can have had times where people care for me. That it's not a result of performing or achieving. So, moving on to nowhere to go. Before we ever, we ever hear or connect with that inner tyrant, there's another quality of mind we live in. I've talked about this already a couple of times on this retreat. We start off life as emotional beings, not based in language, 
connecting with other people through emotions, which are not only impulses to survive, but they are messages to other people about how we feel. Our emotional life, the child runs to the mother or father and seeks attention, which is called in psychology attunement. We seek sympathy, somebody who understands what's going on. And we seek, additionally, empathy, which is communicated by mirroring. I believe Melissa talked about that last night. We seek someone who can, in other words, read our emotional messages. So, unlike the tyrant that believes that happiness is achieved, is accomplished, is accumulated through praise and gain and sensory pleasure and achieving things in the world, the emotional mind wants to find security entirely through connection with other people. So, the emotional mind, even though, as we make the transition to the language-based inner chatter, the inner tyrant, the emotional mind always remains active through the entirety of our life. And the learnings that it learns in the earliest years of life continue to express themselves as beliefs and expectations through the entirety of our life. In fact, when people develop Alzheimer's, they lose the working memory of the left hemisphere, but they never lose the emotional memories from early childhood. So, these emotional associations and beliefs are constantly signaling us and trying to get our attention. But because we live now in a, uh, an external world where we're preoccupied with events outside and we live fixated on our thoughts and chatter, we don't hear very often the messages. How are these messages being sent? Well, we feel anxiety. We can feel anxiety of uh, what's called doing something that will cause other people to reject us. That's actually known as neurotic anxiety. And sometimes that expresses itself through financial fear, fear of losing a job, fear of a relationship falling apart, someone not loving us. But it all boils down to the fear of not being securely connected to other people. We can have sadness, which is the emotional message of a, a loss, an attachment figure we depended on that's no longer available to us. We can have anger, which is the impulse to overcome someone or something that threatens our interpersonal connection. We can have repetitive memories of traumatic events, which are warnings, if they continue to replay in the mind, that we haven't addressed the felt vulnerabilities that led to the original woundings 
For example, I've had throughout my life memories of my father being drunk, coming home, abusing my mom, dragging me out of bed at three in the morning, making me go through cold showers while he drunkenly barked at me about how I was a wimp and uh, wasn't a real man and needed to be in the army, even though I was seven. <laughs> and those memories, those traumatic memories come back because the emotional mind feels that we haven't addressed still our felt vulnerabilities in the world. It's, it's saying there's still the possibility of the, that happening again in our relationships. So, for instance, if we've gone through a traumatic breakup and we relive the breakup, it's the emotional mind saying, you still feel vulnerable in relationships. If we've been violently abused and those memories keep coming up, it's the emotional mind saying, we haven't yet established the boundaries necessary to keep us safe. Fantasies are emotional messages. They are compensations of felt deficits in our lives. So for instance, if somebody fantasizes about being the president, it's because they feel a lack of power in their life, a lack of control. If somebody fantasizes on a retreat about making uh, a relationship with somebody there, it's a, um, in essence, it's a, a statement of the emotional mind that we don't feel an intimate connection in our lives. So every single emotional message, whether it's a traumatic memory, a, a repetitive memory, a fantasy, a fear, a panic attack, an anxiety, an emotional expression of sadness, is a message. There is no such thing as a mistake in the mind. Every single emotional event carries something that it wants us to know. So, what happens though is because these messages are inconvenient to the inner tyrant, which is always about don't stop, don't investigate what is being felt in the body, don't become or express emotions, but to in fact continue to, on the accumulation and accomplishment quest, emotions can be very, very inconvenient to us. And so either the inner tyrant will push it away or a secondary character, the inner addict, which is a secondary figure that just wants us to eat ice cream, watch Netflix, spend hours on Facebook, accumulate as many pleasures as possible because after all, with that inner tyrant barking at us all the time, we need to have something that throws us a bone, a little bit of fun, so that will kick up and go, oh no, I don't like these emotions one bit. I don't like the fact that my mind is bombarding me with memories of the unpleasant events of my past. So I'm just going to fill us up with cravings for Oreo cookies, for I'm going to shop on the internet until I find something that I need. 
I'm going to do anything but feel this message. So what happens when we repress the most inconvenient emotions, especially the ones that our caretakers didn't receive well, we learn to repress because we find them to be unsafe. I grew up in a family where uh, frustration was not an appropriate emotion because my parents were right off the boat immigrants. The goal was to assimilate and achieve and find financial security and to express frustration was to criticize all that they had accomplished. So I could show sadness and anger, which was perfectly okay. But if I expressed frustration with a gift or what was being served or anything I got, it was as if I was criticizing their very uh, basic existence and I would be ignored or shamed for it. And so frustration in my adult life became that which had to immediately be repressed and pushed away. So anything we repress, any emotion that we repress creates a feeling of there's something missing, there's something lacking, a felt emptiness, because we are emptying ourselves of our emotions. We're pushing away from our lives, our deep emotional existence. And instead, what we do to fill up this lack, this hole left by the fact that we can't feel our anger or our sadness or our frustration or our disappointment, is we fill it up with experiences. We become maybe experienced junkies. I need to go to Machu Picchu. I need to take ayahuasca with a shaman. I need to have a threesome every night. I need to I need to um, skydive. I need to I need to fill up my life because there's something missing. Of course there's nothing missing other than what we have repressed. Say that again. There's nothing missing from our lives other than what we have repressed. Reminds me of a great quote by the psychologist Winnicott, who said as well something similar. He said, the things we fear in life are what we've already experienced. If we experience loss, it's because, if we fear loss, it's because we've already experienced traumatic loss. If we fear abandonment, that's because we've already experienced it. And the ruse of fear is that it hides from us the fact that we've already survived that which we fear the most. So, for me, the second great accomplishment of the spiritual practice is we create a safe container rather than running from the emotional messages that our emotional mind are sending us we create a place where we turn towards it and we hold it and we open to it and we feel it and we endeavor even to understand what is being signaled to us from the depths of the implicit mind. What is seeking our awareness? When 
I feel this emptiness in my chest. What is that loneliness signaling other than I don't feel that connected? I need to be more intimate and disclosing in my life. What is that anxiety telling me when I have to give a talk in front of people other than the fear that I might be rejected? And it's based on early fears of being rejected by my peers. When we can hold these messages and not turn from them, suddenly we can allay all of the, the needs they are conveying, whether they are based on early fears that we can easily address. For instance, some of us adapt a fear of conflict. We grow up in families where conflict is poorly tolerated and punished. So in adult life, when we expect conflict, we experience great anxiety and uh, impulse to avoid any kind of interaction that could be conflictual. And if we can feel that anxiety and understand its message, then we can turn to it, nurture it. It's okay, I'll take care of you. And then we can actually walk through that which we've been avoiding. So some of these emotional messages, when we finally feel them and open to them, are going to require that we actually make changes in our life. They're not convenient all the time to the achievement schemes. For example, many people are taught that they achieve security through money and, and career. And so what they lose is the real connection to their families and to their loved ones. And eventually they stand in front of a group of people at their retirement party with an award of 30 years of service in the law firm and they feel completely empty and hollow because their life is bereft of honest, emotional, intimate disclosure. So finally, the last is no one to become. Perhaps one of the great vulnerabilities that the Buddha pointed out is that we live in an overwhelming sea of sensations, experiences that are difficult to make any sense of, and what we are actually uh, experiencing, what Melissa referred to as ultimate or transcendent reality, or that which is not mundane reality, is that behind the idea of uh, our stories and concepts and beliefs and ideas is a constant flux of change. The exercise where instead of thinking about what a hand is, feeling into the actual sensations of a hand reveals that the sensations of a hand are fluid, changing, impossible to pin down. The idea of a hand is something that the mind can just sum up and dispose of. So, amidst this constant flux of sensations, 
the anxiety that nothing exists to rely upon or depend upon or is solid creates the quest for the lasting identity or self. Interestingly enough, a bunch of neuroscientists recently led by a guy named Lieberman have shown that the part of the brain that creates our sense of self or identity is actually the part of the brain that internalizes what other people say about us and has nothing to do with the part of the brain that feels emotions or feelings or in any way even constructs goals. It simply is the part of the brain that activates when other people say, hey schmuck, what are you doing? Or why aren't you being a good daughter or son? Or why aren't you, uh, or yes, you're really good at that. The amazing idea behind this is that while we all believe that the self is somehow the identity that we believe we are, is somehow something that makes us unique. In fact, the goal of self is simply to connect us with other people based on what they've told us about ourselves. The problem is, is that that story we construct to create a solid sense of this is who I am, this is me, is actually a lie. It doesn't capture any of the underlying emotions, the feelings, the authentic self based on spontaneous impulses to dance, to sing, to run, to not live up to the social expectations. Identity is a false self maintained by our reputations, by our habits and routines, by our um, repetitious thoughts, by the stories we tell again and again and again about ourselves in an attempt to pin us down. Eventually, we accumulate more and more obligations in the search for self. We accumulate work obligations, family obligations, relationship obligations, and rather than revealing the felt, the emotional, the intuitive, the spontaneous, all it reveals is the strategies we've adopted to try to win approval. When I become that statement, when I get my degree, when I have saved enough money, when I accomplish this, when I go to grad school, when I graduate from grad school, when I write my book, is simply the chase for illusory solidity. And it leads us into the belief that there's something missing from our life that's needed to be happy. And once again, there is nothing missing. So, finally, if we conquer the inner tyrant through concentration, through meta, through reflections on those people that are deeply connected to us, and if we 
offer a return to our rich emotional lives through insight, through vipassana, through rain practice, through opening to whatever arises and investigating it. There is also the path of undermining and at times releasing the idea that we need to have a reputation, identity that is rock solid, that cannot flow, that cannot adapt, that cannot be loosely held. We do this by changing the aim away from getting caught up about what other people think about us and instead reflect that mind states that are pleasant and happy are created by actions that are harmless and kind. We no longer seek solidity, we simply seek to act in every moment in a way that will ensure peace of mind in the future. That peace of mind will not have a solid quality. It will be in flux. But it will not be something anymore that we will have to worry about how it compares with others. In Buddha's practice, we let go of trying to live by what others say is right, by what is taught in books, what is offered even by teachers. And we question and we see what are the actions that bring me peace of mind. As the Buddha concluded in that memorable sutta, the Kalamas, he said that we will find that the mind, as Melissa said, at its basic has a moral function. When we act harmfully to ourselves and others, we suffer. When we act kindly to ourselves and others, we experience joy. Psychologists like Barbara Fredrickson, Sandra Leah Bomorski have all shown that the happier people are is the more they are connected to their loved ones, the more they believe their actions are um, contributing to the greater good, and the less they entertain the harmful, self-negating beliefs that are so endemic of the inner tyrant. So, in doing this, letting go of this identity quest, we embrace the unexplored in our life. We push against the routines. We walk left to work rather than right every day. Instead of eating the same meal, we eat something different. We investigate in our own, in our experience, what is changing rather than simply refer to ourselves by ideas. In other words, we don't say, I'm a neurotic or a depressive or bipolar or this or that. We look right now, what is my experience today and how is it changing? <laughs> 